Well, friends, if you've been with us for a while now, really since the way back a few months ago in the beginning of Lent, we've been working our way through the Apostles' Creed, this great anchoring confession of the church. And what we've been saying, and what I've been trying to say to you week by week, is that the creed is not just a collection of old dusty doctrines, but the creed dares to tell a story, actually the true story about the world. And we've been following the movement of that story since the very beginning. We began with the story of God's creation, how God the Father created all things. And then we moved to the story of God the Son, how the Son came among us, how he was born and lived and died, and how he rose again and then ascended. And then we moved to the story of the Spirit, how the Spirit is given and then birthed and animates the church and continues to work in and through the church, even now in the present moment. And now at the very end of the creed, the creed dares to tell the story about what will happen at the end of history, the end of all things. It tells the whole story of the world from beginning to end. And what a comfort this is. I mean, seriously, in a time like this, I mean, 2020, what a year, right? I mean, I saw a sign the other day that said 2020. It's like it was written by Stephen King and directed by Quentin Tarantino. I mean, it's, it's a crazy year, right? And sometimes it feels like there's no plot. There's no author. There's nobody driving this train. It's just sort of competing, warring stories uh, at, at war with one another. And yet, as believers, we can say, thanks be to God, there is a story. There's a clear story, a clear plot, and a clear author, and we are a part of that. We know the end of the story, what comfort that brings. And so today and, and next week, the last two uh, Sundays in this series, we're looking at the end of the story. And these are some big questions about what happens after you die, what happens at the end of all things, what happens at the conclusion of history. A lot of people have a lot of speculations about things, and yet the creed and the Bible dares to claim that what we are waiting for at the end of all things is this, the defeat of death and the resurrection of the body. The defeat of death and the resurrection of the body. That's what we're in today. And what I want to suggest to you is that this is such a radical truth that if it is true, it does not just change everything for life after death, but it changes everything for life before death too. <laughs> It changes everything. So let's look at this. What does it mean? The resurrection of the body. Let's just ask first, what does that mean? The resurrection of the body. Well, chapter 15, Peyton did a great job because this is a, this is a very difficult uh, a passage. And Peyton did a great job demonstrating in his reading um, that showing that Paul, this whole chapter, chapter 15, um, is about Paul's, is the, one of the most magnificent defenses in the whole Bible of the literal historical resurrection. Um, if you don't know much about this chapter, I encourage you to go back and read the whole thing later. Um, and in the first third or so of the chapter, Paul is defending the literal historic resurrection of Jesus Christ. So for example, in the beginning of the chapter in verse three, Paul says this, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. So Paul is emphatic 
that the gospel is not just some truth uh, that makes you feel good and is about some like spiritual idea, but the gospel is good news about a person who has historically literally risen from the dead, that Jesus is still alive. And when we say alive, we don't mean that he's alive in our memories, our hearts like Elvis or your great grandma or something like that. What we mean is that Jesus is literally risen from the dead with a transformed flesh and bone body, every bit as flesh and bone as you and me, that he continues to be in that body at the right hand of the Father, and that he will come in bodily form to judge the world and to judge humanity. That's what we mean. <laughs> it's true. But so, so Paul spends the first part defending this doctrine, and then he goes on in the second two-thirds of the chapter to then move to talk about the resurrection of us, our resurrection, those who belong to the resurrected Jesus. He has this fascinating argument where he says, look, if you have trusted in Jesus, if you have put your faith in him, God has united you to Jesus. And so now what is true of Jesus will be true of you. Kids, I have a funny picture here to show you. If you could bring that up. So this is, this is a few years ago when it snowed. This is me on a mountain bike uh, pulling someone in a sled and the sled is tied to my bike riding it through the streets. Now, I do not recommend this. Please don't do this. Parents, I'm sorry for showing this. I'm just using it as an illustration. Um, and I think what, what Paul is saying is, is similar to what's going on here, is that faith is the rope that tethers us to Jesus. Faith is the rope that tethers us to Jesus, that unites us with his life. And so now, whatever Jesus has accomplished, he pulls us along right there with him. So guess what? Jesus has died and he has blasted through death, come out on the other side. He has, re he has now been given a glorified and transformed body. And so now if you are tethered to Jesus by faith, if you belong to him, he, Jesus just pulls you right along where he has gone. He also will blast you right through death. He also will give you a resurrected body like his. What belongs to Jesus now will be true of you. That's your future, a resurrected body. Now, it's important for you to understand this, that in this chapter, Paul is making an apologetic argument against some false heretical ideas that have seeped into the Corinthian church. The Corinthians, unfortunately, had gotten infected by the philosophy of Greek dualism. This idea that the physical matter of the earth is bad, the physical body is icky and corrupt, but the soul and the spirit is good. So what they were advocating for is the freedom from the body. They were looking forward to going away and discarding the icky body and floating around somewhere in some heavenly place. That is called the Greek philosophy of dualism. The body is bad. The spirit is good. Unfortunately, this philosophy of dualism has infiltrated the church for centuries. Even today, I remember as a little boy being at VBS and being told um, by very well-meaning uh, teachers that Jesus died on the cross to make you right with God so that when you die, you could go to live in heaven with him forever. And friends, as, as earnest as they were, Paul is emphatically saying, no, this is not the Christian hope. The Christian hope is not some disembodied hope. It is a deeply bodily hope. 
that our hope, the one that Jesus has died and risen to win for us, is one that involves resurrection of the body. He says this in Romans 8, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. No, he does not say the redemption from our bodies, but the redemption of our bodies. That's what we're waiting for. The resurrection and redemption of our physical flesh. This is the Christian hope. Now, this was con confusing to the Corinthians. This is confusing to us. They asked back in verse 35, well, what will our bodies be like? And in verses 42 through 44, in our reading, Paul says that our bodies will be radically, almost unimaginably transformed, and yet they will still have some sort of organic continuity with our present selves. He's using a, an agricultural an analogy, if you follow his argument carefully. I have here in my pocket a little, a little acorn. Oops, I sort of smashed it a little bit, but it's here, I promise. Uh, this is an acorn. I picked it up outside in the lawn um, in front of the church building. Kids, I'm sure you can't see it, but I'm sure you have seen an acorn before. Now, what happens when a little acorn falls into the ground and gets the right amount of soil and sun and water? What happens to the acorn? It becomes an oak tree. In fact, we have three or four beautiful, massive pin oak trees lining Forest Avenue right in front of our church building. Now, if you had never seen an oak tree before, and, and you would even you not be able to believe that that massive 100-foot oak tree with gigantic limbs and colorful leaves, that that oak tree had come from this. And yet... There, there is a continuity between the acorn and the oak tree. In fact, they literally have the same DNA, and yet there is a radical transformation. And that's what Paul says our resurrection will be like. You will die. Your body will go. The acorn of your body will be put into the ground, and then you will be raised to an oak tree. You will still be you, but you will be a radically transformed you. Friends, this is amazing. I mean, the only glimpse that we get of this in the Bible is Jesus' own resurrection body. What happened to Jesus is a preview of what God will do for us. He says in verse 49, 1 Corinthians 15, 49, if you could bring, bring that slide up. He says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, which is Adam, so shall we also bear the image of the man of heaven. Or in Philippians 1, he says, we await from heaven the Savior Jesus who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So all I know is this, what Paul says is that our bodies will be like Jesus's. They will be uh, imperishable and glorious and powerful. Right now, our bodies are tenuous and they are weak and, and, and we're born weak and we die weak. And in between, some of us experience relative strength, but even then we are captive to fragility and weakness and disease. And then eventually we die and our bodies decompose and return to dust. And yet Paul says, one day you'll be an oak tree. One day your bodies will be whole. Can you imagine what this means for those who suffer trauma or for those who endure the debilitating disease of mental illness? Can, can you imagine what this means for those who've experienced disfigurement or dismemberment or whose bodies have been ravaged by torture or cancer or abuse or age? 
Can you imagine what it would be like to have all of your aches and pains and wounds and scars redeemed and healed? Can you imagine what it will be like to be the glorious, beautiful, complete you that God designed you to be? That is your future, friends. You will be in Christ an oak tree. That's your future. A resurrected body. But let's ask this. What difference does this make? What difference does this make for for our lives now? Not just life after death, but life before death. Well, let me just mention a few applications. First of all, I believe that the resurrection of the body clarifies our hope. You know, there's basically two popular options out there to oversimplify about what people think happens to you after you die. There's the secular option, which is basically death and decay. Your body is put in the ground and eaten by worms. And then there's the religious option, which is you go to heaven and you float around with a harp or something in this ethereal place and look down and smile at those that you love. And frankly, um, I don't know about you, but I'm not real excited about either of those options. I certainly don't want to get eaten by worms and I really don't even like harps. Uh, and, and so I'm not excited about either of those things, but thankfully neither of them is the biblical view. Now, let me be clear. Some of you might be asking what does happen to you when you die immediately Well, listen, it does seem like there is some sort of heavenly waiting room, if you will. Paul says in Philippians 1, I desire to depart and be with Christ. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. The Bible does seem to teach that when you die, you go in, be with Christ. You are in some heavenly waiting room, waiting for the resurrection. But this waiting room is not the ultimate destination any more than going to the waiting room of the doctor's office is your final stop there. You're waiting for the doctor. You're waiting for healing. So our ultimate hope is not the waiting room of heaven, but a resurrected world. We are waiting not for life after death, but life after life after death, as the scholar N.T. Wright says. So Jesus is bringing about a new creation. This is our hope. We got to get clear on this, brothers and sisters. Jesus is bringing about a new creation in which there will be rocks and trees and hills and rivers and mountains. This is a creation in which there will be no more death and injustice and pollution and war and racism and and chaos. This is a world in which we will live with transformed bodies and eat and drink and work and play. This is our hope, a material hope. Christianity is the most material of all religions, one theologian said. And this gives us great hope for our future. Uh, Dr. Richard Hayes is a New Testament commentator. In one of his books, he writes about a young woman, a young teenage uh, woman in his church named Stephanie, whose older, daughter, whose older sister, Lisa, had died in a car accident. And after Lisa died, many people in her church were trying to say well-meaning things to her, things like, Lisa is much happier now, or... God must have wanted her to be with him, or Lisa is looking down on us and telling us not to be sad. And the more people said stuff like this, the angrier she got, because it didn't feel right. And then Dr. Hayes approached her and, and read this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 with her and showed her, no, death is not natural. Death isn't something you should be okay about. Death is the enemy, Paul calls it. And yet our hope is not heaven. Our hope is resurrection that you will one day actually see Lisa in the flesh again. You will hold her and hug her and embrace her and know her. She will be more human, more material, more Lisa than she has ever been. You will see her again, no longer as an acorn, but as an oak. That changed her experience of grief. It changed her experience of hope we got to do that for each other. we got to clarify 
our hope. Second, though, it removes our fear. Look, if the resurrection is true, all of our enemies are defeated, and our worst enemies are death and hell and Satan and evil. And a lot of times it looks like the battle is still waging on, and yet we know that for our enemies, the death blow has been given, and they're on their way down. And therefore, we are part, Paul says, we have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this truth has made Christians historically quite fearless. We know that in the first, second, and third centuries of the church, epidemics spread through the Greco-Roman world at the time, taking out whole swaths of the population, up to 25 to 35% of the population killed probably by smallpox. And we know also from the history books that most people just fled to the hills, abandoning their dead, even, even taking sick people, people that they knew could potentially affect the members of their own family and throwing them out into the streets to die even before they were dead. And yet we also know that the Christians chose to stay put. They stayed put in the cities. They stayed put. They nursed the dead. They nursed the sick. They took care of the ones who were sick and not just their own. They picked up the ones who'd been thrown out, even who were not Christians, and they brought them into their own homes. And Rodney Stark, who wrote The Rise of Christianity, a historian, says that that single fact helped spread the movement of Christianity throughout the Roman world more than anything else, the fearlessness of the Christians. Now, let me ask you this. Why did the pagans flee and the Christians stay? Was it because the Christians were better people? No, it was because of their theology, because they believed in the resurrection and therefore they had no fear. Do you hear that fearlessness from Paul? He says, where, O oh death, is your sting? He's mocking death. He's saying, do your worst. Death, come on, come at me. Do your worst. The lower you bring me, the higher I'll go. The worst you try to do, the better I'll become. That's what death does to Christians now. I love what George Herbert, the poet, says. He says, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made death just a gardener. Just a gardener. And what a powerful application for us right now, whether it's coming alongside those who are sick and vulnerable or coming alongside those who are in pain over racial injustice. I mean, there is just a whole lot of people in pain and grief right now. Our world is afraid. Our world is in pain. And Christians are not, nor ever have been those who run away or shelter or isolate themselves from the pain and sorrow of the world. We are those who run right toward it. Why? Because we're not afraid. Death is just a gardener. We're afraid of nothing because there's no fear. If you don't fear death, you don't fear anything. I am not advocating that you put yourself in harm's way, social distance, wear a mask, all that. And yet we have no hesitation to plunge right in where Jesus calls us to be, to care for the suffering, to put ourselves at risk when Jesus calls it to. Why? Because resurrection means we have no fear. Removes our fear. And one last thing. The resurrection of Jesus motivates our action. Notice that Paul's final exhortation is to action. He says in verse 58, Therefore, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is amazing. He says, our belief in the resurrection does not make us passive people, but active people in which we are engaging in purposeful and meaningful labor in and for the world. Now, why would that be? Well, listen, just think about our two other options here, right? If you just believe 
that you're going to go to heaven one day and that's your ultimate destination and the world is just going to burn up, then you really have very little motivation to try to work for a better and more just uh, society and world, right? It's all just going to burn up. On the other hand, if you're a secularist and you believe uh, that you're just going to die and decay, well, you might try to work for a better world, but guess what? You're going to die and be forgotten. And all the people who knew you uh, are going to die and be forgotten. And eventually all of humanity and everything that humanity has worked for to create a, a better world is going to die and be forgotten. And the whole thing will ultimately be meaningless and, and terribly eternally futile. <laughs> but if you believe in the resurrection, if you believe that God is on the move, resurrecting creation, resurrecting the earth, that a resurrected new creation, new Jerusalem is on the way. If you believe that we are going to be given new bodies and a new material earth, then goodness gracious, our work matters. The world matters. The body matters. Labor matters. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, Paul says, knowing that because of the resurrection, your labor is not in vain. What is the work of the Lord? Well, you might say preaching, evangelizing, reading your Bible prayer. Yes, all those things. But also we know the work of the Lord is what we see the Lord doing. We see in Genesis, God creating his hands in the dirt. We see God cultivating and commissioning humanity to steward creation and to build cities and to care for plant and animal and human life. That's the work of the Lord. And we look at Jesus, we see Jesus, how he cared not just for broken uh, souls, but broken bodies and how he cared for, for hungry bellies and, and, and empty pockets and, and mental illness and relationships and communities that Jesus cared for the whole person and whole creation. That's the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord is any work that is partnering with God to bring previews of his resurrection shalom that is currently on its way and will come one day fully. That's the work of the Lord. Christians have more motivation than anybody else to protect the body, to care for the earth, to work for justice, to build just and holy societies because through Jesus, God's power has already broken into the world and he is now in the business of renewing all things. He's calling us to get with his program. Friends, I'm telling you, on Thursday night, I was down uh, on, on Lee. I was down on um, Monument Avenue near the Lee Monument on Thursday night for this prayer gathering that Four Richmond helped to organize uh, for, for the Christians of Richmond. And many of you were there from third, and there were about a hundred, there were hundreds of Christians there, about a hundred different congregations represented. Uh, all different races, all different denominations, all different ages. It was one of the most profound and spirit moving things that I have ever been a part of in my whole life. And, to, and then last, on Friday night, there was another worship and prayer movement right there down on Monument Avenue. Friends, the church is rising up and repenting and praying and pleading to God for peace and racial justice, and racial reconciliation. And the motivation of the church is the very things that we are confessing in the creed. What we believe about creation, and salvation, and resurrection. That message that I sent to you on Thursday, and that message I said, it is actually part of the work of the Lord to repent and to acknowledge the sordid history of racism in our country in the way that we have devalued and degraded black and brown people and black and brown bodies. That's happened in our land, in our city. 
whether it's through the horrors of slavery or, or Jim Crow laws or the way that cities and societies have been built on unfair and unjust laws and policies and practices. Friends, this, this terrible and I would say demonic doctrine of white supremacy that's been a part of our nation from the very beginning, it is a force of the devil that has held us in its power. And yet when we say, oh my goodness, when we say Jesus is resurrected and he is resurrecting our bodies, we're saying that Jesus has triumphed over that demonic power. And therefore now he calls his people to pray and work for a world in which black and brown bodies and black and brown lives are honored and valued and dignified and protected and loved without hesitation. And believing in bodily resurrection means that the church is radically pro-life pro-body, pro-world, pro-humanity. Why? Because God loves the earth. He loves the body. He loves humanity. And now he calls the church to stand for the protection and care of every vulnerable person, whether it's the unborn person in the womb or the elderly person at the end of life or people that have been historically oppressed. This is not a right or left thing. This is not a political thing. This is a resurrection thing. It's a kingdom thing because Jesus is risen and he is on the move making all things new. Give yourselves wholly to the work of the Lord, Paul says, because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And so we do it. We give ourselves to the work of compassion and mercy and prayer and justice and evangelism and care. We, we help shape more just and thriving societies. We protect and preserve all life and even creation. We give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. But thank God, friends, that the final result is not up to us, right? That's up to Jesus. Jesus is coming. He's on his way, friends. He's coming to make all things new. He is the one who will finally and fully bring the new creation that we long for. But until then, we are sowing. We're sowing the seeds of his kingdom. We're filled with his spirit, his resurrection power, knowing that nothing, no seed we ever sow for him, no work we ever do for him, none of this will ever be lost. Nothing will ever be in vain. Our work for Jesus will be caught up as he is making all things new. What an amazing vocation, purpose, hope, and mission Jesus has given us in this world. Thanks be to God. Friends, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Do you? This is our hope. This means not just life after death, but life before death. This gives us power, hope, and courage for now, today, and for all time. Thanks be to God. Let's, let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he rose from the dead for us. And we thank you that he, by faith, tethers us to his risen life so that we are pulled right along with him where he is, that our future is a resurrected future. Help us not to be those who just sit around and wait for that day, but who, like Paul says, are, have minds of action, who are filled with the spirit of resurrection and who engage in resurrection work in the world and the work that you are doing to renew all things, to help bring shalom to your creation. Thank you, Jesus, that you've given us such a mission. We pray now that as we come to this table, that you would prepare us to receive the power of the fruits of your risen life, your death and resurrection for us. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.